Good morning, good morning. It's good to be in worship with you guys today. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Ryan. I too am one of the pastors here on staff, and it's good, uh, again, to be in worship today. And it's my privilege that I get to lead us in our time uh, in the Lord's Word this morning as we continue in worship to sit in subjection to the Lord's teachings, to surrender ourselves to that and allow the Lord to speak to us, to guide us, and to lead us. And so I'm excited for that. If you have scripture this morning, let's pull it out and go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And so as you're turning there, uh, one of the things, one of the frontiers that Taylor and I have entered into with small children is the ideological battle as a parent of how do I raise my kids in the modern culture and the modern age when it's kind of unavoidable that, that screens are a part of our kids' lives, right? And, and I know there are all sorts of theories on screens and whether they're good, bad, or you're indifferent. Uh, and yet as a parent, when we first, actually before we had kids, we kind of came to our conclusion in perhaps a level of self-righteousness of our kids will never have screens. They're just going to listen to classical music, and it's going to be like this little symphony in our house, and they're going to be reading books before preschool, and my kids are going to be geniuses. And then fast forward a few years, now we have three, and it's like, baby girl, if you want to watch Elmo at the table, daddy just wants to enjoy his meal for just like six seconds. And so here's Elmo. God be with you. Right? And so, but one of the lines that we drew with our kids was they, the boys, especially at seven and six, they love in the cars, they always ask if we're going to drive anywhere, hey, can we have our tablets? Can we watch a show or something while we're driving? And so one of the rules that we have is if it's just kind of like driving around town, we, they, they can't have a screen. But if we're going to like drive out to see family and it's going to be a couple hours away, then yeah, you can watch a movie or something on your tablet and no big deal. But in town, just driving around doing errands, going to school, whatever, no screens, okay? So we set that rule up for our kids. And then last August, uh, like most parents, I'm an absolute hypocrite, and, and we just accept that in our lives. So we're driving around. Yeah, my parents are like, you. Yep. So we're driving around town, and I have this nasty habit. I don't know, maybe you struggle with it too, but I may tell my kids not to be addicted to the screens, but I am addicted to my phone when I drive. And so oftentimes when I pull up to a red light, like I know I, I, I love Jesus, but I just pull out my phone and I go on Instagram because apparently like my soul can't handle waiting 30 seconds for the light to turn green. And so in August, we were driving around town and we were on Catella and Beach. And I'm in the left-hand turn lane to go from beach onto Catella. And I'm sitting there, I pull up to the light, we're just driving around town, Taylor and the whole family's in the car. And I pull up to the stoplight and I just pull out my phone and I start watching stories on Instagram. And right now, all of you people that don't do this are judging the heck out of me. And so I'm just watching stories on Instagram and then I just feel a presence at the left window side. And my window's down because it was August and it was a nice day. My window's down and I just feel a presence and I kind of look up and there is an Orange County Sheriff's deputy on his motorcycle just looking and watching the stories with me. And he's looking in the window, and I make eye contact with him. And he just gives me the two-finger point, like, let's go that way. And I was like, okay. So then I, I make the turn, and I'm pulling over, and now the kids are loving this. And so they see, because he's behind me, he, he's pulling me over. He insists on flipping the lights on his little bike, and so he pulls me over, 
And I pull to the side and the kids are just so excited because they're like, daddy's going to get arrested. And I'm like, first of all, I am not chancellor. I do not get, I do not get arrested. That's not what I do. So I'm trying to explain to the boys the difference between getting arrested and getting a non-moving citation. There's a big difference in terms of righteousness. And so he pulls me over. He gives me the ticket, and I go on my way. And the boys, every time we drive to school, and they, they know where that motor officer hangs out right there in that area. And every time they see him, they go, Daddy, is that the guy that arrested you? That is not the guy. And so that was a lesson for me in a little bit of my own hypocrisy. And we all live with this in our lives, whether you're a parent or not. And so I had set a standard. I told my kids what was, what was acceptable and what was not. And then I got caught living with what we'll look at this morning in Matthew chapter 7. I'm living with the log in my eye, trying to raise my kids with the speck in theirs. And so this issue that Jesus is going to lead us into this morning as we continue our series on the parables is talking about how do we as God's people navigate life in such a way as a community where we hold intention to things, wanting to hold a standard of righteousness amongst our community and how there's appropriate judgment to take place to facilitate that, but also not becoming people who are judgmental, people who from a morally superior standpoint then go about the body of Christ and begin to hold each other in judgment in an unhealthy way. And so we're going to look at the text this morning, and my prayer as we begin is that we would learn how to be a community of people who hold each other that standard, who we don't waver on what it means to be judging or having moral judgment in the church, and yet doing so in a way that encourages righteousness, doesn't come from a place of moral superiority and condemnation. And so with that, let's look at the text, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And it says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Lord Jesus, we pray now as we turn our heart's attention to your word. We pray that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move amongst us, that you would lead us and guide us in your truth, that you would, that you would use it as a tool to shape us, that we might become righteous as you are. And I pray, Lord, that as you lead us into this text, that you would teach us how to lovingly hold one another accountable for righteousness' sake. And yet, Lord, guard our own hearts from becoming self-righteous people who would stand in moral superiority over one another, that our heart would be all about yours to to reject sin and to pursue righteousness and to encourage one another in that direction. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your people and our time in it together this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so we're jumping into Matthew chapter 7. Now, we've talked about 
a similar section of Scripture before. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is uh, at the end or towards the end of one of Jesus's, what we would call sermons, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, which is just a, a collection or gathering of his teachings. And so one of the purposes that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount is he is, as we look back at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, one of the main things that he's trying to accomplish is holding out before people, teaching them the better way of righteousness that is in his kingdom. That they may have heard various theories on what it means to be righteous, and yet he would show what it looks like to live righteously in the kingdom of God. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, there's kind of this crucial statement that he makes. And he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things that he's doing is he's saying, hey, you've heard it taught one way from this group of religious leadership. And I'm telling you that unless your righteousness is above theirs, which is really, it's, it's mocking the fact that they're not righteous, unless it's better and above that, then you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and yet here, I will unfold for you what it looks like to be righteous in the kingdom. And then he goes on throughout the Sermon in the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mount, to teach that. And so when he gives his presentation of better righteousness, some of that has to do in the way that we relate to God. And yet in this section, in Matthew 7, in these, in these couple verses, he's beginning to transition now to talk about better righteousness as is lived out in our relationships with each other. What does that look like for you and I to exist in the kingdom of God in such a way that is righteous? And now they have a preconceived idea about what it looks like to correct one another. And yet Jesus is saying, man, there's, there's another approach to it. And most importantly, there's another set of motivations to that. That if you're my people living in my kingdom, pursuing righteousness, this is how that will look, and this is how that will unfold. And so before we get to understanding the text, one of the things that we have to kind of acknowledge at the beginning is that it is very possible to read what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, and to come away with a bad interpretation. And a bad interpretation of this passage would be to believe that what Jesus is saying is that there is no place for moral judgment in his kingdom. And it's easy to look at verses 1 and 2 and to take that out of context and just say, there you go, Jesus says it, you can't judge, therefore nobody can judge anybody. And the reason that that is bad interpretation is it's missing the point of what Jesus is trying to teach but also when you look at how that interpretation and that set of theology gets played out in the church, is it becomes, hey, you do you and, and I'll do me. And then when we actually think about what happens when the church lives out that mantra, is it's a mess. Because we're not able to properly hold each other accountable in moral judgment about a standard of living. If we just wipe that ability away, then it's all of a sudden, hey, you do what you feel is right, and I'll do what I feel is right, and we'll just agree to disagree. And what happens is we live in a postmodern world, and in a postmodern world, absolute truth is no longer a centerpiece. Truth moves from the objective, and it becomes more subjective. 
to what do you believe truth is and what do you believe truth is, and then I'll tell you what I believe truth is. And the problem is when that postmodern set of ideas creeps its way into the gospel and you come to, with bad interpretation, a passage like Jesus here says in verses 1 and 2, all of a sudden you take that postmodern belief and you then take Jesus' words out of context and you say, you're right, Jesus says we can't judge anybody. And then with that, now it's you believe what you want to believe and you practice and live out how you want to do it and I'll do it my way and Jesus says we don't judge. And when you marry those two things together, you have a really dangerous situation for the future of the church because now we're, we're like a ship that has no steering. Now it's just floating all over the place. And so we need to, as a church, we need to have a set of standards that, that Scripture's given us, and we stick to that, and we agree together. And that's why we have, if you've gone through our membership class, we have what we call the membership covenant. And that covenant is a list of what we believe the Bible teaches is a God-honoring, gospel-centered lifestyle. And we take that, and we teach that, and we hold that, and then we all agree, and we say, this is the standard of what Scripture would teach, and we affirm that this is a gospel-centered, God-honoring lifestyle. And then part of the end of that class is we go through that, and then we commit as members saying, I'm going to, I'm going to live that out, but I'm also going to submit myself to allow my brothers and sisters in the church and my leaders of the church to hold me accountable, to to exercise moral judgment on my life, that when I mess up and when when I go wayward, when I pull to the side and I start to walk away from Scripture's teachings, then I expect my brothers and my sisters and my leaders here at the church to, to exercise some moral judgment to say, hey, Ryan, what you're doing is not in line with the gospel. And so we want to affirm with you that that is sin for the purpose of we want to see you get restored to righteousness. We want to see you be restored to what we all agree is a God-honoring lifestyle. And so you can see when, when you have bad interpretation and some bad ideology, and you marry those together, then all of a sudden you have an idea that, hey, in the church, you do what you want to do, you do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do, and if we disagree, then we can't judge each other. And that's a recipe for disaster. And so we just have to acknowledge that there is a necessary place for healthy moral judgment in the church. And we're going to walk through Scripture and form you know, this biblical theology to get good interpretation Because bad interpretation will lead to bad implications in our lives. And so we want to get that right, how we hold each other accountable. And so without healthy judgment, we have that you do you and I do me kind of situation. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this is a drastic example of when a church kind of abandons holding one another accountable in moral judgment. And when we say moral judgment... It's not a position of superiority looking down on another person saying, you're wrong, even even though they may have strayed from the gospel. But it's where we come alongside one another and we say, hey, we both know that this is sin. Now, how do we work to reconcile and to restore you through repentance back to a gospel-centered lifestyle? And so this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a drastic example of a church that uh, fails to do this. 
And so let's check it out in verse uh, 1 through 5. It says this. Paul's writing to this church, and he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And so it's a drastic example. Paul's not even there. He's hearing reports, right? And this is not a normal occurrence in the church, at least not from my church experience, right? There's not a whole lot of people that are openly sleeping with their stepmother. And yet in this situation, it's going on. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm not there with you physically, but word is spreading that this is happening in your church, And the word that's being spread is not just that it's happening, but that you're allowing this to go on, and none of you guys is saying, eh, I think this might be wrong. I think that that your lifestyle decision is, is not in accordance with the gospel. Heck, I mean, even Paul says that even people who don't believe in Jesus don't even do this stuff. And here, you're in the midst of worship, everybody knows you're doing this, and you're not upset about it. In fact, you're actually proud. And so we see, though this is a drastic example, that's what happens when as a church community, we're like, hey, I know that what's going on over here is wrong, but I'm just, I mean, you do you and I do me. And you see the trouble that it leads the church into. And as the church, we, like Paul says there, though he's not physically present, right? sometimes we fall into this idea that Again, another lovely little nugget from post-modernity is that, uh, and it's a really popular phrase, especially with younger generations, is that in order to be in a position to tell somebody what to do, you need to know their story, or you need to get to know them before you can speak some form of truth into their life. And so, again, when the church adopts this, then we start to go into some dangerous waters where, like, I, I, I have to somehow hear your backstory before I'm able to, to acknowledge that what you're doing is sin. And, and then you see Paul, he's like, no, I'm not even physically present with you. I don't even know who this person is. I've heard reports of it, and I don't need to sit over a cup of coffee with this guy to hear his backstory to know that that's just sin. I don't need to know you. I don't need to be there, but I can just affirm from a distance that that's not a gospel lifestyle. And hey, church, you need to do something about this. And so we have to acknowledge that there's a good place for moral judgment in the church. And it's easy to say that, but also very hard to lovingly do that. And I can imagine why some people would feel apprehensive about talking to the guy in church. Can you imagine if you had to do that? Confront somebody in the church who's sleeping with their stepmom in the church? Like, not a lot of people would be jumping at that chance. And so that's a drastic example, but then we bring it down to our daily lives, and for so many of us, that's exactly what we do. 
no, no, I, I, what right do I have to tell this person in my small group? You know, they shared something. I'm like, no, it's not my place. I know that what they're doing is, is dangerous for their faith. I know what they're doing is, is dangerous for our testimony as a community. But I'm not, I don't feel like I am able to. And, and bad theology will keep us there too. And that's when sin sneaks in and sin hardens hearts, as we'll look at in a little bit. And that's when each of our decisions, if we fail to hold each other properly accountable through moral judgment, then all of a sudden our testimony begins to be destroyed. And you you know what Paul's talking about, like the word got around, not about how faithful the church is, but word got around that they got a guy sleeping with a stepmom in the church. Like Christ is not being exalted and acknowledged any longer. Now it's just this sin is what's being known. And so that's why it's so important. There is a place for us to hold one another accountable. And now it's also important because I know a lot of us struggle with this. Look at verse 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. Because this is where we get confused with Jesus' words. When, when do I hold somebody accountable? When is it not my place to hold somebody accountable. And Paul helps give us a little bit of clarity, and we'll flesh this more, or we'll flesh this out more in our connect groups this week. But look at verse 12 and 13. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those where? Outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Therefore, expel the wicked person from among you. And this is helpful for us because we do get confused. It's like, well, when am I being called to hold people accountable in moral judgment, and when is it not my place? And, and Scripture makes it pretty clear. Man, if they're not in the church, how can I hold somebody accountable to the teachings of Jesus when they're living in darkness and they don't believe in the teachings of Jesus? What good does that do me? They don't profess it to be true anyway. And so the problem with, the, with many of us in the church is we're more comfortable holding those outside the church accountable to the beliefs and the teachings of Jesus, then we are holding each other accountable to the teachings of Jesus. And then Paul's laying it out. He's like, hey, what business is it of mine? God will judge them eternally. That's not my job. But my job is to hold my brothers and sisters. Those of us who have said, I profess faith in Jesus. I, I submit myself to living out his teachings. When you do that, we have to hold each other accountable. And so Paul is saying, that's where you need to be doing this. But now you need to be doing it in the right way with the right motivation. And, and so my gut tells me that most of us, we struggle more so with this piece. It's the motivation piece. Why is my soul wanting to exercise moral judgment over my brother? And the motivation is where many of us go wrong. And so as we continue in Scripture, we'll take a look at it. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. And now Jesus is talking about better righteousness, remember? Now for the Pharisees, they too would hold people accountable to what they believed Scripture taught. But most of the time, their idea of accountability, the purpose of exercising moral judgment, was not to see someone restored It was not with the heart set of, man, I love this person and I want to see them leave what is dangerous for them and return to what is good for them. Therefore, my heart is that they would 
experience mercy through repentance. And so Jesus is saying, that's not what they're in it for. What they're in it for is condemnation. I want to look down on this person, and I want to remind them that what they're doing is wrong. Maybe it's because I want to validate that I'm better than them. I know there's nobody like that in the church. I I need to remind myself that they've got the speck in their eye to make me feel superior, to remind myself that I'm better than that person. So my heart is not to restore them. My heart is not to help them be healed. My heart is not to see them repent and be, or to rather to experience the mercy of God. My heart is just to remind me that I'm better than them. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness is better than that, you'll never experience the kingdom. And in fact, verse, or chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 says, if that's the measuring stick that you use, well then please expect that same measure to be applied to you by your Father. If your heart is just to hold your brothers and sisters accountable, not because you love them, not because you want what's best for them, but merely because you want to feel superior to them, by all means, but just know that that same standard will be applied to you. And so Jesus is saying, if that's how you want to handle judgment, don't judge because you don't want that same measure applied to your life in that same way. And so we look at the, the better way. Look at James chapter 2. Now, in, in James chapter 2, he's talking about this idea of judgment, but not just judgment for condemnation's sake, but judgment for mercy's sake. And there's a big difference between those two things. And in James 2, in verse 12... He says this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so the whole question here is, as you and I try and figure out what it looks like for us to hold each other accountable to remind each other about the standard of Scripture, there's a good way and a bad way to go about that. And Jesus is saying the bad way is when you sit there in moral superiority and just want to condemn. And then when we follow it up with James, the question becomes, man, what's my heart in doing this? If I see my brother or my sister heading down a dangerous road, why do I correct them? And Scripture is clear, unless your heart in that is because you genuinely want to see them restored to mercy, then we go back to what Jesus is saying, and, and, and first, you got some work to do yourself before you can arrive in such a place. We have to have judgment that leads to mercy, not just condemnation. And again, I think this is where many of us struggle, and especially we struggle in strained relationships. I know that those things don't exist in the church either. But let's imagine that you had a strained relationship with someone in the church. Maybe this church or maybe your family members profess Christ too. And there's some, some tension there. Maybe it's just low-key tension. And I always know when I hit on a hot-button issue because everybody does it. The old squirmy worm in the seats. Maybe you've got a relationship in your family or in the church or it's a friendship and there's been tension there that's been building. Maybe it's been building for a while or maybe it's fresh. But oftentimes, whenever we have tension in a relationship, 
if you're messed up like me, you will find your mind focusing perhaps more thought than you normally would give to a person's faults. Or you start to, with a more critical eye, fine-tooth comb through their life and be like, oh, man, see? This validates what I think about this person. Look at how they parked in the parking lot this morning. (laughs) Clearly, they don't know Jesus. And we, sorry, David. And so we, be, we begin to fine-tooth comb people's lives. We put them under a microscope when there's tension and there's a strained relationship. And then with the wrong heart set, we begin to criticize and critique and look for the specs. Because we look to those and we want affirmation that what I think about this person is true. And I will dig up any speck necessary to prove me right. And Jesus is saying, man, if that's your heart, you're not seeking to judge your brother or sister for a good end. You're just there to judge them, to validate that you're better than them, to validate that what you believe about them is true. And so then we come to verses three through five of our passage. And Jesus says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? The little question, why are you doing this? Motivations. Let's heart check ourselves at the first step. Why am I doing this? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and then, listen, pay no attention to the plank in your own? And that's what Jesus is getting at. Man, you're looking, you're fine-tooth combing this person's life, hoping to find something to validate what you think about them. All the while, you've neglected the plank, the massive board that's sticking in your own moral eye. And Jesus is saying, first, deal with what you got going on. And then, if you're free of those sins, then, and your heart is right, then, only then, can you come to your brother or sister and say, hey, I see this in your life, I care about you, and with good motivation, I'm genuinely here to help you be restored in mercy. And the hard thing is, is that unfortunately, for many people in the church, the way that we practice exercising moral judgment is we don't go through that process. We're perfectly content to stick with the fine-tooth comb looking for specks in other people's lives to prove ourselves right. And Jesus is saying, man, there is a better way. There's a better righteousness that both you can be called to and they can be called to. And what would it look like to have healthy motivations? And so then we last, we go to Hebrews chapter 3. And this is what Hebrews 3 talks about, about that good motivation. And how do I properly do that? Like realistically, if I'm not going to fine-tooth comb people's lives, what does it look like for me, because I'm not very good at this, because I've been doing the fine-tooth comb thing for a long time, like how do I actually do this in a way that gives life and brings mercy? And we look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And the author says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened 
by sin's deceitfulness. And so what the author is saying is, hey, you yourselves first be on guard because sin will harden your heart and sin will deceive you and take you into places that are no good for you. They will move you away from that standard of righteousness and sin is crafty and it will deceive you. Don't do it. And yet when that happens, then the author speaks to the brothers and sisters and says, man, you need to encourage each other. You need to be there for each other to encourage and to remind one another to exercise good moral judgment and say, hey, I see that's, that you're struggling here and I see that it's, it's leading you to some dangerous places and because I love you, because I want to see you restored, because I want to see you encounter the, the mercy and grace of God, I bring this to your attention. How can I encourage you and help lead you back to what I know is best for you? And so the scriptural way is, man, that we would encourage each other in that. And one of the cool things is, uh, for my Connect group this past Tuesday, is we just spent our time together that night just sharing prayer requests and just praying for another and encouraging each other. And I got to watch this past Tuesday in particular as one of the brothers in our group just kind of come forward, and, and most of us are parents with young children, so I feel like this is a recurring prayer request in our group, but it was, my kids made me snap this week. And I yelled at my kids. And I, I acknowledge that that's not the kind of parent I want to be. That's not the kind of example of Jesus that I want to set for them. But I'm just letting you guys know, I, I, here's why I got pushed to this point, And I snapped and I yelled at my kids. And it was... It was encouraging for me to see all of a sudden our, our connect group actually live out what we see in Scripture. And I, I got to watch one by one as, as each of them didn't discount the fact that what he did was wrong. They got to agree and say, yes, we agree with you. That's not how you should raise your kids. We agree with you that that was wrong. But, but also here, let, let us challenge you with this. Here's how we've seen you grow this last year as a parent. And here's how we've seen you grow in your marriage too. And so then I got to watch as our small group began to speak and to affirm and to encourage him while also exercising good moral judgment and say, yes, that was wrong. We agree. But man, here's how we've seen you grow this year. And so, therefore, we have confidence that you're going to keep heading in that good direction. And so I say that not, because, not just because I, I will look for any opportunity to make shameless plugs for you to get involved in a connect group. <laughs> you need to be. Because that's where you get to experience that stuff. That's where you actually get to experience living out what Scripture is talking about. How do I be held accountable and hold others accountable in such a way that promotes mercy and righteousness? And I can attest that it's true because I saw it this last Tuesday. And I saw the way that my brother left that place a little more joyful than he arrived. I don't know how he did this week with his kids. But I know that his group encouraged him against sin's deceitfulness. And so that's my prayer as, as we close our time this morning is my prayer is for us as a community, and I'm going to invite Jared to come forward as we continue in worship. But my prayer for us as a community is that we would learn how to balance that, 
to hold each other accountable to a standard of righteousness, but to do so in a way that promotes mercy, not in a way that causes us to condemn our brothers and sisters for no purpose's sake. Let me pray for us as we continue in worship this morning.